0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick.
0: This week, myself and guest host Georgios Konstantopoulos chat with Anatoly Yakovenko from the Solana Network. We talk about their system and their innovations that allow them to achieve high performance without sharding. But before we start, I want to let you know about the CLR matching happening on Gitcoin right now. If you want to support the show, help fund our production, or just help us bring out these episodes every week, it would be a really great time to do so. The way that the CLR matching works on Gitcoin is that every time you make a donation to the Zero Knowledge Podcast grant, this amount will be partially matched by a sponsor's donation. The more small donations, the higher the matching. So basically, even a small amount goes a long way. Anyway, I hope you'll consider supporting. I want to say a big thank you to all of the folks who have already supported. We've seen a few come in in the past week, and it's been really exciting to see that. So now here's our episode on Solana. So with Polkadot being launched like as we speak, Frederick is super busy. We decided that we would invite for this period of time some friends on the show to help me co-host. So today we have Georgios, who's going to be helping me to co-host this episode. Hi, Georgios.
2: Happy to be here.
0: Georgios has been on the show before, once, I think, but mentioned many times. And Georgios is an independent consultant in the space. Now, today's episode is all about Solana which is a layer one project, they're based in SF, and they're recently on mainnet slash beta, which we're gonna find out a little bit about. So welcome to the show, Anatoly.
1: Oh, thank you so much, super happy to be here.
0: You're the co-founder of Solana. Why are we saying mainnet slash beta? Is it not live?
1: It's live, it is actually the full featured mainnet. Why are we calling it beta? And we have like over, there's over, I think, 150 validators altogether. It's like as decentralized and and live as Cosmos. We do have four boot nodes that add up to over 33% on the network. So that's partly why we're calling it beta. And the reason why we have those boot nodes is because it's new code. This is 200,000 lines of Rust written from scratch in the last two years while drinking a lot of coffee, like at 2 a.m. It's ridiculous for anybody to assume that this is going to be as stable of a system as Bitcoin that's been around for 10 years. So to me, the beta tag stays on for a year. Like if we can make it a year without any catastrophes, then we can take it off.
0: I think it would be really great to find out a little bit about you. What is your story? Where where were you coming from? How did you get into Solana?
1: Okay, so I can I like start from the very beginning, born in the USSR, right? So grew up in the, My childhood, eight years in the Soviet Union, ended up in the States, right, moving as soon as the Soviet Union fell apart. My parents got out of there. I kind of grew up in Chicago, went to Urbana-Champaign, met some friends who uh, I started a voice over IP company with. And this was back in like... 99 to 2003 wow. we were trying to build like a Vonage
0: this is some early stuff
1: <laughs> this was before google grand central be- before a Vonage we were like let's put these telephony cards into these linux boxes and we'll learn linux and we'll learn how to like programmatically control phones um and like freaking was like a thing i like in high was school i love the hackers movies yeah,
0: say. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice. I I I was I subscribed to 2600. Like um, I tried the stupid phone trick where you record the yeah. the yeah. tones. It didn't work at the time. <laughs> like so.
0: I remember that man. I gotta rewatch that movie.
1: But yeah, like the, it got me into like computers and like got me into like building Linux and that like got me to learn start to figure out how to code in C and that that was really kind of the start of how I got into computers. Basically, Qualcomm hired me in the spot in like t- 2003. And I was like lucky because this was post dot com crash. I was like, holy shit, I got a job. <laughs> I'll be able to pay off my loan, which at the time seemed insanely huge. But right now, looking at student loans, I'm like, wow, I like paid nothing. Oh. I was like 70 bucks a month. Imagine that. Imagine having a student loan from like a top five computer science and engineering school that was $70 a month. That's wild. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean I'm from I'm from Canada and tuition's different there. And also I live in Germany where tuition's free. Yeah. But I, I I've been following like what's
1: happening busy. Yeah. Um so Qualcomm spent most of my career working on optimizations. Like I just kinda got into that mind space where like I have like software, which is code and language is and mathematical, right? And then I have hardware which has very fixed instructions and opcodes and pipelines and I'm like how do I stuff the most amount of math into this like group Goldberg machine that's always kind of broken and like working at Qualcomm was really interesting because at that time like when I started you know you guys remember 2003 cell phones
0: yeah the the, the clunky nokias kind of or was no, it the, flip this was a
1: little then? after yeah these were flip phones.
0: Like the Razors?
1: uh, Before Razors, but this was like the start of the (laughs) flip phones. They're like, oh, we can make them smaller clamshell design. But like these were 400 megahertz, 16-bit ARM chips. So they were dog slow. Everything was written in C. Like we actually built this operating system called Brew. I was one of the core kernel engineers, one of the first folks working on it. And this was hand-rolled c with C compatible virtual tables that you wrote out by hand. And the reason why we didn't use C was because the compilers were too crappy to generate C for the 16-bit ARM architecture. We're like the code is too big and the instruction cache can't handle these big object sizes. Like this is stuff that nobody needed to care about on like now. Nobody nobody cares about the stuff. The only people that care about stuff like this are people building for Solidity. So just a little swipe at an EVM <laughs> where you yeah. have to optimize every loaded store. This was like my my life working on cell phones. Um, so well, the cool thing, though, that like every year there was like an architecture revolution in, in uh, cell phones. So I learned a ton and like basically also learned just working there for so long, protocols, operating systems, and especially wireless kind of like how wireless protocols work and where they get their kind of throughput, like their optimizations. And so that's my story. And like 2017, I was at Dropbox at the time working on compression with like a really fun, awesome group. So yeah, (laughs) it was like, I I I had the perfect job and I like, I I left the perfect job. You Um, left
0: the perfect job. To become a founder.
1: In crypto, of all things. Um,
0: <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what Solana is. So,
1: like, a big part of what it is, I think, actually comes from um, the team. So myself, operating systems geek, I worked on Brew, Android, and, like, Linux, and every permutation of those things. Um, Greg, who's the CTO, he was actually one of my friends back in those, like, trying to build the Vonage days in in UIUC. He's a compilers expert. He basically worked on languages and compilers the whole time he was at Qualcomm. And our buddy Steven, who who was a GPU lead, started at Intel but also ended up at Qualcomm. Um, He is like the kind of main go-to for any kind of optimization. So Solana is a layer one blockchain smart contracts platform but it's really like if you if you have if you want to know anything about it everything that we're doing is optimizing the hell out of every possible thing that a blockchain would do at the hardware level so we're horizontally scaling everything we can by using hardware like basically is there mm-hmm. is there any operation that's a bottleneck that if we add more network cards, we get more, uh, more like packets per second. If we get more SSDs, can we do more reads and writes, more state reads and writes? If we add more cores, can we execute more transactions? So the whole idea is that, like, the stupid CryptoKitties example that everyone brings up when they talk about scaling, what should have happened is that the people that were seeing the spike should have just doubled the number of cores in every one of these validators or miners, and there wouldn't have been this, like, the, the the customers wouldn't have seen an outage, right? This would never happen in like a web company. Mm-hmm. That's just like, holy shit, we're we're hitting like a million monthly active users we didn't expect. They would just double the number of cores in, in AWS, right? <laughs> and and mm-hmm. to me, this is like a fundamental problem. If you can't do that, then you haven't solved scaling. If you can't throw hardware at it, you haven't solved scaling. So everything we're doing, and if you want to know anything about Solana, is that like this is a hardware-based scaling layer- layered one.
0: What is the origin story of Solana?
1: This was like a a weird experience, like a, on like a very strange level. Like I had like two coffees and a beer, and I was talking to my buddy about proof of work and why it sucks. And I like was up till four in the morning, and I had this like eureka moment. It, it felt like. I don't want to say religious, but like like an acid trip or something, right? Like it was just like a this massive light bulb went off in my head that I can use Shot to 56 and use it recursively and generate a data structure that has, uh, like you can measure time with it. And why that to me that was like such a big kind of punch to the head was that like, I don't know, Giorgio, you probably know this. There's like this Italian guy that wrote about like there's like Five universes, and one which there are reversible functions, uh, right? And one that, there are, that reversible functions exist, but we can't prove that they exist, right? That irreversible functions exist, but we can't prove that they exist. And the universe of irreversible functions cannot exist, and we can prove that they cannot exist. And what he's talking about is, like, there is, there's no mathematical construct for the era of time there's nothing in math that represents time, right? There's math represents every kind of other physical property, but like there's nothing that represents time moving and take this thing that generates data purely at a math that, that, that from that data alone, you can have objective measurement of time that like was just like, Holy shit, this is the era of time. <laughs> and like, I couldn't even figure out what to search for. I, there was nobody working on VDFs that openly at the time, and I didn't even know the term VDF. Yeah,
0: that's that was going to be my question. Right.
1: So I like I searched a lot. The only thing I saw was like RSA time locks, which were fairly similar, um, and like nobody was using them in crypto for anything interesting. And why I was so obsessed with the time component was that all these years at Qualcomm, the wireless protocols just kind of get hammered into my head and. The first wireless protocol anyone's ever built is like imagine two radio towers that talk to each other at the same time or the same frequency. They get noise. So the first thing that people did was like let's give everybody a clock and alternate by time, and that's called time division multiple access. And this is how you scale the number of participants per second, um, which is same problem as block producers per second, right? If we can stagger the block producers by time, there's no collisions. Everybody gets to take their turn, and we get as many block producers as possible right so that was like oh okay i can do this whole thing
0: so you but like the vdf research was actually happening potentially in parallel to what you were thinking of did you like did you at some point realize that it was happening and that it had a name
1: yeah so i like um quit my job and like started writing the white paper And talking to a bunch of people, basically, like like this was an easy time to kind of get into crypto because it was blowing up like in this like very obvious way. Like Bitcoin was doubling every two weeks or something crazy, and uh, I ended up running into Zaki, and Zaki talked to me and he was like, "Okay, you have something that isn't bullshit." And it's called the verifiable delay function. You should go look at all these papers. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And like the interesting part was that like, I looked at all these papers and at the time they were way over my head. I like, I'm an operating systems engineer, right? Like throwing myself into like class groups and RSA accumulators and all this other stuff. It was, it it was hard, right? This was like, um, a Mm -hmm. lot of learning, but, um, the cool thing was that like the thing that the stupid shot to 56 loop that I designed after talking to, to some folks like Dan Bonet, he was like, well, you have actually works really well. So don't change it. The stuff we're working on right now is iterating so fast that it's just going to be outdated by the time you guys implement anything. <laughs> right. Um, so I got like the blessing from some of like really important people. and I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll just, we'll just go build on on this. And that was, That was like good enough and it turned out to be like um a fairly good choice because like we quickly realized that um the silicon like the people ship like intel amd it is basically the same everywhere and we have almost no drift between shout to 56 running on an intel chip or amd chip or any other architecture TSMC, Intel, they're all basically like at the latest and greatest material science as possible. And they can't really squeeze out and beat each other by like a large margin. So, so that like that ended up being a fairly good kind of bet. Because um, the, the, the really amazing work that folks that are building VDFs, like Justin Drake and, and all those guys, they're building something that is um, not yet optimized down to this, like, gate, like, pipeline latency level that shout to is, that Intel ships. Like, here's, like, here's, like, here's like the it. fastest Shot to 56 our engineers could mm. build, and it's going to take you a big pile of work to make it any faster.
0: We actually did an entire episode on VDF with Bonneau, who is one of the co-authors I think with some of Dan Bonet's students. So that's actually an episode I'm going to add in the show notes for you to better understand what he's talking about. But it sounds like your VDF is very different. It's, do you call it a VDF?
1: Um, Dan Bonet did say that I could call it a VDF, but I, I'm like, it's, it, it is an embarrassing implementation. It's an embarrassingly stupid way to do it. But it's so simple that an operating system engineer can make it secure. Right. Like I don't have to understand it that much about cryptography. It re- it's a recursive sha to 56, which means it's because it's recursive and sha to 56 is pre-image resistant, there's no way to parallelize that process. So that's kind of obvious to me at least, right? And the way we speed it up is the very dumb way is we just checkpoint the data as it's produced, and then we verify the samples uh, in parallel. And because us as people that work at Qualcomm and are very familiar with hardware and SimD lanes, single instruction multiple data lanes, and GPUs. We can take any one of these kind of scaling solutions, like that are chip level scaling solutions, and use that to to speed this up. So your phone right now has, I think, a thousand SimD lanes in this GPU, so you can verify a second in a millisecond, and that's good enough. But it, it does cost data.
2: Could you perhaps expand on how the verification is? Uh made faster than the evaluation? Because my understanding is that yes, you do you do a sequential computation where you just keep hashing.
1: It's exactly the same amount of CPU time. It's just the verification is parallelized. Mm -hmm. So it takes less time to to verify than real time, right? Because what we care about is real time, that like when this thing transmits a block, whoever receives it in real time can verify it faster. And the block producer has the force delay.
2: Right. So what I was thinking is that, um, as a validator, in order to know who the latest block producer is, I need to have, you know, the latest state of the hash chain. Is that correct?
1: This gets into like everything else that you have to build on top to build the blockchain, right? This is like the simplest part. And Mm. well, everything, this, this part, this this whole VDF thing, the key part to this is this is a way for us to track time before consensus. Yes. Before there's been any consensus, we have this uh, Lamport clock, this logical clock in the network. And the logical clock part of it isn't the hashes itself, it's the count. I actually like the count as what's important. Like a block producer shows me that they reach count 1 billion, and the next one shows me that they reach count like 1 billion, 200 million or something like that, right? Like the, this like the amount that they're adding to this data right is is like the the interesting part. That's the logical clock moving forward. That's the arrow of time. Um, the The state right we leverage as a as a mechanism to kind of keep track of transactions and when they reference a particular hash value, that's our kind of like mechanism to make sure the transaction was signed after that thing was generated, things like that. So, to answer your question, like the how we do actual like elections or like scheduling uh, is a very, very dumb way. Again, like we do with the simplest thing first is uh, based on some prior state, we generate a leader schedule, which just basically assigns some stake weighted deterministic seated round robin fashion of which validator based on their stake weight is assigned to which slot. And that leader schedule gets turned on and plus one epochs, right? So based on epoch one ends, right? And epoch three gets the result of the state calculated by the end of epoch one, Mm -hmm. which means that this machine halts. If we can't find a final state within an epoch, right? If we can't finalize a block within an epoch. Mm
0: -hmm. Is it based on, Anything that already existed, like is it taking other models? Is it taking an existing blockchain and sort of adjusting it?
1: Yeah. So, like, uh, I personally believe that every proof of stake implementation is some form of PBFT. We based our thing on PBFT, although we kind of did a lot of modifications. And Emin would mm-hmm. like scream and tear that there's no proofs, but like, hey, it works. So, <laughs> 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 um, which is fine. The Bytecode is using Berkeley Packet Filter, which is a uh, not Wasm. It's uh, bytecode used by network switches, so it's designed for kind of high performance, low latency stuff. It's got interesting properties like there's no stacks; there's only stack frames, so you can take this bytecode and uh, execute it like a kernel on a GPU. So single instruction, multiple data. So again, in that like CryptoKitties example, right? We have a single contract with hitting a spike. Because it's a single contract, it's a single kernel, most of the transactions are going to take the same branches. We can run this kernel on a GPU card, which has, let's say, one one execution thread, but 80 lanes per per, per thread, right? And then like 80, 80, 80 execution threads total. So that that's how you scale stuff on GPUs. So we do stuff, we do like tons of stupid tricks like that, which end up, reducing the cost of the execution, right, and therefore reducing the cost of the blockchain and things like that.
0: Is it based a little bit on, like, the Ethereum model, though? Like, do you have a VM? Do you have a statement? Like, is it set up that we way? We don't
1: or? have a VM. Like, the EVM is, like, very academic. So the way we've designed it is more like, if you look at the DMA, to direct memory access to hardware in Linux, and this concept of scatter gather, where the memory that you where people need to understand what a von neumann machine is right <laughs> you have basically memory right and that memory is just bits right it's bits and those bits are grouped into cells They're like pages or bytes or however you want to do it words and they have addresses and um these things are flipped by a separate part of the machine the cpu right and this thing is like getting instructions from the memory and then those instructions say go load and store stuff right and you take this model like at an academic level and this is what EVM kind of tries to do right there's specific load instructions there's store instructions and they say why don't we have 256 bits for everything hardware like at the actual implementation level is much more complicated because now you have caches and l1 caches that are in the l2 caches and l3 caches and points of unification that are weird, and prefetches and all this other stuff. So, what operating systems do is they force the programmer to tell them ahead of time everything that they're going that they want to do. So when a programmer wants to like load a bunch of textures and like run a bunch of transformations over those textures, they actually have to tell this thing ahead of time: here's a bunch of resources I need you to go fetch from disk here's a bunch of stuff I need you to load into these regions of memory. And these are the kernels and things that I'm going to run over this memory. And all this is known ahead of time. And then this hardware is programmed and then it executes.
2: I mean, you're you're kind of... You don't need a VM because you're leveraging the bytecode from the Berkeley Packet Filter as your runtime, is my understanding. Is that fair to say?
1: No, Berkeley Packet Filter is just a bytecode, right? It, this is what LLVM poops out. And that part mm. we picked because it, it has yeah. like, it's been around in the industry since the 90s and it's safe to run in Ring Zero. But the important part is that we don't have individual load and store instructions. All we have is an entry point into uh, executable object, an ELF position-independent code, right? And that entry point says, this is the memory I'm going to read, this is the memory I'm going to write.
2: So you're saying that you're not operating on, the, on a per-address-per-instruction per level to do loads, but you're just loading full pages of uh, data.
1: Exactly. And you're kind of amortizing the cost. Exactly. And because each transaction tells us ahead of time all the regions is going to read, and all the regions is going to write. That means we can pipeline and overlap, and you can pre-allocate also. Exactly, yeah. we can do, we can do everything, right? <laughs> right. and the, the, this is how like hardware is built, right, and shipped. And the EVM design is very academic, and it's going to take, I think, a lot of engineering effort to take this academic approach and underneath it implement what we have. Right, you can do it. It's just going to take a big pile of work.
2: Uh, a question on this. So, the performance bottleneck that comes for using the AVM, okay. it's not entirely, you know, ob- of course the AVM has some downsides on the performance, but also it has to do with uh, cross contract calls. Because when you call multiple contracts, you effectively have to take a mutex on all the shared state of these contracts. So, how would it work on Solana if all the you know, if you want to do a cross-contract call, does any bottleneck get introduced?
1: The transaction specifies all the memory it's going to read and all the memory it's going to write ahead of time. So there is no mutex to take. The transaction itself is the mutex, right? It's got, uh, I always mix up these two database terms, but I, I believe it's called isolation.
2: So what if uh, what if two transactions are sent and they both want to interfere with the smart contract?
1: The contract is, is position independent code. It has no state. It's a transaction picks some state that it wants to mutate or read. And that's the state that's specified ahead of time by the transaction itself. The contract itself is pure code. It's just instructions.
2: Which is different to how Ethereum smart contracts are, because Ethereum smart contracts do have state
1: Because the because the code mixes in globals, right? Yeah. And the first rule the first rule that you learn in like as a programmer is never use globals for anything. <laughs> <laughs> At least as a seed developer, right? You're like, yeah. no, no globals, right? If we can get back to your
2: point about the consensus of the system, you said that you use some form of modified PBFT, which I recall reading yeah. about. However, in your documentation, you have a big section on fork generation. Um, while uh, f- to the best of my understanding, PBFT and all BFT algorithms do not, you know have the notion of folks it's just you have the latest state and that's it and then you keep moving is there a quick yeah. explanation on what's the difference
1: yeah 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 so so basically like what are the two techniques to make things fast right one of them is we, we did that's obvious is you like use a global clock right but if you have like a bunch of if you're doing a bunch of protocols if you have a global talk, clock right you get read consistency right i sent you a bunch of messages i sent and a bunch of messages, and you guys order them the exact same way because you have the same time stamps, right? So that amortizes that communication. The other go-to optimization is like basically using a window, Nagel's protocol, sliding window, right? You receive a bunch of data, and you don't respond until... You don't respond on every message, right? You receive a bunch of it, you batch the processing, and then you respond on, on the entire slot. And effectively, what we did is like... We still have to do PBFT because we have to come to some conclusion on what the root block is, and all we're doing is allowing the network to slide that window out of how many states have been produced,
2: and the number of states it may define the um, the number of the may introduce some branching because you're kind of building you might build on um, unconfirmed
1: state. Right. Exactly. That's it right? Those are the only two go to things. None, none of these are like computer science, like field metal things. They're, they're like stuff that engineers do all the time.
2: So is it correct to say that you're able to get, you know, very quick blocks by kind of optimistically building on top of unconfirmed blocks?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is optimistic. How does this relate
2: to, I'm just thinking about speculative execution attacks in this context. So Is there any way that I can kind of force one processor to go the one way and another, the other way and uh, introduce some consensus error?
1: Yeah, not an error. It's just that... So this is kind of my intuition, and it's outside of my expertise to prove prove this kind of stuff. But I think, like, uh, Zaki called it asynchronous safety, right? Like, you're producing state, and the safety is actually following the head pointer of the chain and me as an attacker i can actually prevent my data from being propagated and i can observe what the chain is doing yes and i could potentially then transmit my data at the right. r- at the right moment yeah. and effectively force all that computation to be discarded
2: yes that's an issue with all synchronous right. protocols so
1: so because we have this window the attacker now has a larger set of data to play with, right? They have larger mm-hmm. set of states, right? They can manipulate potentially more things. So I would assume that there's bugs there, or, or not bugs, but exploits that could allow the attacker to extract more value, you know, potentially like allow them to generate more rewards than anyone else in the network that's not doing this attack or do a denial of service, right? Cause the fork to drop blocks unnecessarily, things like that how much of that is a problem is unclear because like if that stuff is observable, right. The attacker is in a proof of stake system, especially like a deterministic one, like ours, the validators are well known ahead of time, right. The block producers are well known ahead of time. You end up in a situation where you know that like, Hey, chorus one is like explicitly dropping blocks of every other validator. And is like trying to do a censorship attack why, right? (laughs) I think we need like a lot more product market fit in the space for us to worry about that. Got it.
0: That's actually, that's, that's interesting though, that like one of the protections here is the reputation of the validators and the fact that you do know them at the moment. I wonder like this, if you look at the example of like mining, um, it also started out very friendly, and everybody knew each other and, you know, could kind of predict how they would act. And eventually, I mean, I guess it's still known, but it became much more aggressive, much more competitive. Like, would there not be a time where one of them gets strong enough, or there is some sort of backroom coalition, and they're not that friendly?
1: Possibly, but that could be after product market fit. And yeah, so like, I I think like, there's like a fundamental difference between, I think, Proof of work chains, especially one that Bitcoin is trying to be, which is like no weak subjectivity whatsoever. Like this is like proof of work to the max, um, from a proof of stake chain that's trying to be, we're the fastest possible censorship resistant state transition engine you could think of. They're like two separate things, right? Like I think the proof of work use case I can see it being a store of value, right? There's like some really interesting properties about Bitcoin and how the mining works and like how security is aggregated and things like that, that are, these properties are not there in any proof of stake system that I've seen, right? And I can't claim that we are going to be a store of value because I don't see those properties, those emerging properties out of those. Unless maybe we get to a point where we have so much censorship resistance that, I don't know, you have to corrupt like a million parties to, to actually, to, to break that, right? Like, and that that's like a long ways away, right?
0: I wonder, so I like this sort of the, so using the term product market fit for whether it becomes a store of value or like, um, this, is, this is interesting. <laughs> I haven't actually heard that in that context. So I'm, how are you thinking about finding product market fit and where do you see yourself going?
1: Yeah, like, I mean, like, I, I mean, the bet we're making is that the number of companies that have like enough users to where they care about transaction fees and the slowness of Ethereum and all this other stuff. There's enough of these companies already and enough that that number is going to keep doubling every year, right? Because just the space is going to grow and they're going to pick the chain that will give them the best web experience. And that means lowest latency, cheapest transactions, Cause like what we're competing with like I think fundamentally isn't like Ethereum it's uh, Google ads which is the value of that transfer right of, of a Google ad is 0.2 cents and it comes at you in 200 milliseconds. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like we need to be like a hundred times cheaper than a Google ad for a web company to consider replacing ads with cryptocurrencies and creating social network effects from those cryptocurrency usage. Right to where they're getting the same kind of revenue as if they would have had ads, but now instead it's just currency based, right? And then we're the platform where this stuff runs, so we have to be much much cheaper than an ad for them to consider replacing ads, right? So to me, this is what I'm competing with. Is in my mind is like, how do we get rid of like this parasitic form of money, which is like sucking your attention, right? (laughs) With like a more fun form of money, which is dodge. Like dodge is an awesome idea, right? A meme coin.
0: Oh, you mean like like it, Doge?
1: <laughs> Doge. I call it dodge Doge.
0: I think Doge. Do- yeah,
1: Doge. Doge. Uh, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm 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 born in the USSR, so I pronounce everything incorrectly. <laughs> but yeah, definitely <laughs> cool. like stuff like that. Stuff that's fun, right? That like the internet is supposed to be a bunch of fun things. For that stuff to work, it needs to be super super cheap. Like. Basically free to the user, where the company can subsidize it, uh, and this is this is what the goal we're trying to make. And I don't think it's unreasonable because the cost of the hardware is ridiculously cheap. Fifty bucks buys you a terabyte of egress. Terabyte is four billion transactions.
2: Is the goal for Solana to have, um, you know, only validators or block producers to run the nodes, and then consumers of the software that gets written on it just interface with Solana via these like buffed up uh, nodes or do you see you know uh, users running their own um non block producing nodes so that they can you know query uh, transaction locally or verify the state so
1: far I mean like if you if you have censorship resistance right then you can just basically trust your light like client because right? you you trust that this group of keys signed the right thing because the thing your group of keys that you're using for your like client right is based on the censorship resistant network so with a like client, that that's kind of a like where, where do you draw the line there? I mean
2: it's not just about it's not about just about the censorship resistance or you know the liveness of the system it's also about the safety in the sense that no validator did not commit a transaction which you know gives them a million tokens out of nowhere or something like that. In Bitcoin, for example, um, miners may censor transactions, but if you know 51% of the miners or whatever try to produce a block that gives them a lot of money out of nowhere, that block will not propagate because you know full nodes will reject that block because it has invalid, uh, it has an invalid transaction. While, if there are no rules
1: yeah, so we, we have sl- we have slashing right, so so and anytime you like do something that the rest of the network doesn't do, right, you get slashed. In that sense, like we're not not no no worse than Cosmos in, in terms of like kind of like safety guarantees or economic the economic game theory about the security of the state, right, is, is based on slashing effectively. So the interesting thing is that like. Um, we're hugely fans of weak subjectivity Mm -hmm. which is like i think a a funny way to like checkpointing yeah which is a funny way to just use like the old security paradigm which was tofu trust and first use right you observe you observe something you trust it in first use and then you verify that it's still the same thing that you trusted so tofu right if you're like a user, you connect to the network the first time you trust it at whatever state it is, and then you continue continue trust it based on that state. And mm-hmm. based on that, like one is that like any kind of state sharding techniques that Ethereum is working on, awesome folks. Uh, those can be applied to temporal sharding, which is like I run my validator today, and then I run it a month from now. I get all the proofs about data availability and verification and economic guarantees a month from now. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It's it's consistent with what I observed a month before. Right. And I can continue. So you can make it like as you, you can get the same guarantees there, but for now what's implemented is just basically tofu, right? You, you connect to the network as long as you stay connected you can continuously verify that the same set of validators are validating the exact same state. Okay. There's fairly easy ways to catch up because main bottlenecks are like the cryptographic operations, right? So those are trivially parallelizable because you can farm those out on like a big cluster of GPUs and run all the signature checks independent of each other.
2: I guess we, we've been talking about quite low-level stuff all this time, and the podcast is called the ZK podcast so i think a question i have around this is uh do you see zero knowledge proofs leveraged uh in solana to make running a node more manageable
1: it's so cool yeah
2: yeah yeah
1: or like it would be awesome (laughs) i'm
2: I'm thinking of something similar to cello's light client protocol called uh, plumo which i believe also was recently on the podcast
0: Oh no, we we had it at the summit.
2: On the summit. On the summit, right. So I was thinking that you is there any room for further optimizations utilizing your troops? Is anybody in your team looking at that perhaps?
1: Uh we're not. Like, I mean, 99% of the work in this is data availability, right? <laughs> this is what like if, if we're working in core, it's like working on the network protocols and like optimizing them and trying to get this data faster across this global internet that's some nodes are behind the Chinese firewall right there's like a a big pile of work just there so this is really like what we're working on right now I think the there's a lot of interesting things right there's like stateless VMs where you just use RSA accumulators right And, and things like that where what I need to observe is a very small chunk of the state and then everything else not only contains the memory it needs to read but it can also contain a proof that that memory actually belongs part of the state and stuff like that could there's a lot of optimizations that are super interesting. Uh, we haven't had a need for them yet. I think fundamentally what I'm imagining these things are for isn't like like a messaging platform. I think the goal of these things is actually to accumulate as much state as they can and make it atomically accessible and this is why I think philosophically sharding will fail. Oh. because it's not atomically accessible state And the fact like it means that if you have atomically accessible state, right like I have one giant enormous state machine, let's say it's a petabyte of data. This isn't just regular data anymore right It's data that is globally agreed upon and those bytes have value right and we can atomically do transactions on them and we have this enormous price discovery engine, that's constantly like effectively removing the, the entropy in the state, right? It's like optimizing these things down to the lowest possible price difference between any of these states. So this is like a very complicated engine of price discovery. And when you start it or when you split it over, you lose that. And then, then all you have is just a messaging system. And to me, that's not interesting. To me, what's interesting is like, how do we get the world's like most relevant Information of that has anything to do with anything of value into a single giant bucket and have like the best possible price for any of these
0: bytes. I mean, but do you think then does this also categorize sharding systems just as a different use case? Like going back to product market fit idea, like is it just that they'd be used for different things or different types of projects?
1: But what if they're slower and more expensive and like worse engines of price discovery? What is the use case? I think the use
2: case here is decentralization, keeping the node running costs very low. Because, as we said previously in the call, as you increase throughput, clearly the hardware requirements increase. Sorry, I I, I might sound like a broken yeah. record at this point, but I just want to like. Clearly communicate my point in the sense that um, sharding allows you to scale while keeping verification costs low, and uh, that's also that's also in the same sense as what layer two is supposed to do. Um, but <clears throat> while in your case, indeed, um, you're able to scale because you know adding more c- GPUs or disk spaces cheap. You're relying on this assumption that the cost of acquiring more computer storage grows sublinearly with the demand. Yeah. So, you know, if, yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, slash convinced that this is, you know, a sound uh, assumption. Or perhaps, how do I say, what do you do if this assumption breaks?
1: I just wait two years because then it's going to be because hardware is going to get twice as cheap.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this by yeah. by the way though the idea that sharding will fail this is the first time I've heard this said. I have
1: a whole podcast called No Sharding. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> this
0: is your this is your mission to basically say yeah. this is the information you're bringing to the to the conversation
1: to get away from the uh, s- subjective bullshit. Let's descent the whole purpose of decentralization. The only function of it that's objectively measurable is censorship resistance, in my opinion. Yes. If I have censorship resistance, I can build whatever decentralization features you want on top of it. As many readable nodes. And regulatory arbitrage. Exactly. Like all you need is censorship resistance. So imagine I have two shards of 200 nodes each, right? Binance is in one, Coinbase is another. It takes 67 nodes. Let's say they're all equally staked any 67 nodes in any other two shards can control the flow of funds between these two massive financial institutions. Yes. And the reason why I sharded is because I need, I, I can't grow my commit committee right above 200 because we have this like limitations based on software protocol or hardware, or whatever you want to call it or philosophy. Now, if instead I took, I, I took the same cost of hardware and just had twice as more powerful machines, right? that committee cannot be 400 and now it's 137 machines that control the flow between Coinbase and Binance. And that's more censorship resistant. So if, if the thing that we're trying to build is censorship resistance, then what we need to be maximizing is the number of nodes, the minimum number of nodes that it, it takes to get to 33%. Um, I don't even know if this is possible because Proof of stake sucks. It like it's centralizes. Just like people are bad. They go to ex- exchanges, they pull their money in the exchange validator. So I, I'm not hundred percent sure that it's even if this is even possible. But I'm pretty sure that sharding is not gonna get us there. The stuff that's not possible, I think, is the human behaviors around actually participating in these networks and the governance of it.
2: But again, the the issue is that in, in this situation where you have one big chunk of data that all validators vote on, that the cost of, commu- the communication cost as you just keep adding more nodes in this context also grows. While again, in the context of sharding, each shard is independent of each other and they just checkpoint their state. And you only have the overheads for due to the cross-chain transactions, which that's what you are trying to minimize.
1: Sure. But no, what I'm, I'm not, it's not about cross-chain transactions. I'm trying to increase I'm censorship resistance. This is the only point of decentralization. With the setup, whether you have a single committee and you throw hardware at it, I can take dollars, right? I can take fiat. I can take the work that we do as humans and I convert it into censorship resistance. Sharding doesn't achieve censorship resistance because when you shard your groups, right, you're also splitting your set right they can decide where where stuff flows and to me this is like the the foundational problem with it
0: but what about like the beacon chain or the like the central body that's supposed to actually fix for that
1: okay i'm i'm binance i'm in shard one coinbase is in shard two right i don't give a shit about the beacon oh, you chain just,
0: um, <laughs> you just act within there
1: there's There's some hedge fund that bribes sixty seven nodes to control the flow between these two massive trading financial institutions and is now gaming the system and earning a return based on that right this This is kind of like that that's going to happen if if it's possible right if it's possible for some fund to bribe the flow of funds between these two organizations they'll do it because there's enough money on the line
0: but why would you only need to bribe sort of the controllers of the one shard
1: Georgios? Tell me I'm wrong, but like, when you split your committee, right, any one of those committees is the the minimum of any one of those committees can decide the flow of funds.
2: The idea here is that you make an initial assumption that some percentage of the total pool of the validators is honest, and then you try to distribute these validators to a shard. And the whole idea is that the way that you distribute these validators to the shard Will not break the assumption because
0: it would be random in a way. Yes or something. Yeah
2: And this is called the static and this is called the static adversary model which Assumes that an attacker that gets assigned to a shard cannot Adaptively corrupt another shard and this would indeed allow them to you know Cause bad things to happen if they could And maybe that's a fine assumption. And maybe that's a fine assumption, but uh, other people, for example, uh, near people are not convinced, right? And that's why we have, you know, multiple different approaches to
1: solving the problem. And it's fine, right? Because like at the end of the day, all of us are trying to like get to the next level where we like slay the vampire squid, right? We're not even talking about Binance and Coinbase at this point. It's like the other guys, the Goldman Sachs, like everybody that's like siphoning 20% 20% of the world's GDP into like bullshit, just moving numbers around in computers and a lot of people. So from, from my perspective, like, it's fine, like people should try all this stuff, because I, I don't know, it, it's even possible that because you can allow more people to participate in these networks, because it may be cheaper, right? That may be more important than censorship resistance. Mm-hmm. And that, that is like a I think um, a point that I don't want to miss right like that is like how do you because because part a big part of these networks isn't really like the like the the actual like tech right it's like actually the community is built around some philosophy, some yeah,
0: the values that they hold
1: right if they believe that this mm. is decentralized even if it's wrong right it's if they if enough people believe it Right then, uh, then there's enough social pressure to where this kind of corruption is very hard to achieve in reality. Right, it may be theoretically possible, but it may be so devastating to the community that no token holder that's sufficient enough would actually do it. And this is, I think, is missed. Or you know, when people publish attacks in Bitcoin, I think they also missed that part. You know, Binance had like 40 million of their Bitcoin stolen. But the suggestion was that why don't they just publish a private key or actually issue a transaction with a high enough fee to unroll the chain? Because 40 million is like, I think, four days or at the time, there was four days worth of, of blocks. So they could literally like write a transaction from, with their old private key, right? Four days ago on a block that's, I don't know how many blocks it is, but a few hundred blocks, let's say, that says, hey, I'm going to pay the miner a absurd amount of money to go create a parallel fork and unroll four days worth of Bitcoin.
2: But I guess that's a feature, not a bug, right? The Binance reorg story.
1: But Binance wouldn't do it because they hold so much Bitcoin that the threat of a four-day reorg is, would devastate the price and the confidence that people have into the chain itself. And I doubt the miners would even do it if Binance tried. Yeah. If if we were going to, like, get a little bit more meta, then the tech doesn't even matter. What matters is can you make the people that participate in the network believe that this is decentralized and censorship resistant?
0: <laughs> and have their incentives so aligned yeah. that it would be such a mistake for them to, like, they would lose more by screwing it yeah. up than they would gain.
2: Um. Maybe we can again get a bit back on the privacy story because we are after all as we said in the DK podcast. <laughs> so what is what is the private uh, what is the private story about Solana? Have you
1: thought about it? Have your users asked for it? Um we thought about it and that's about it. I think like
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're so not into
1: privacy. <laughs> no, like it's it's a super hard problem. Zero knowledge stuff is not a, a very of expertise. It is something that is an absurdly rapid research. So for me as like a an engineer, when I look at this stuff and I see, like when I ask the experts, what's the what's what what should we actually even look at? And what they point me is a paper that's been published two weeks ago. I'm like, oh, this is still too in flux, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just like yeah. Because two weeks from now you're gonna point me to a different paper. And honestly, the only thing that I've heard that's worthwhile, like if we had to like some I don't know, big enterprise bank says, we want privacy. We'll use Solana and we'll give you a lot of money if, if you give us privacy. What we would use would be Sapling, like Zcash. Because it's... Something a little bit more proven. Mm-hmm. It's been around for so long that I feel like the bugs have been mostly weeded out. Zcash was around for like four years now, right? Yeah, ish. So I, I feel like there's 50% chance that there's not going to be a catastrophic bug in Sapling um, in, in the next four years.
0: Although saplings earlier, like sapling only came out. Okay. So implemented last year, I think. Yeah. Like cause that's an update, right? Like sprout was their first one that did have a bug and then sapling or bug. There was like a missed thing.
2: Sorry. So on a more, you know, again, a bit lower level on, on this subject. So sapling is built on the UTXO model. While my understanding is that Solana is account based.
1: You can map one so, to the other one.
2: I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it would be as simple.
1: Well, okay, so the way we kind of think of, the, of our runtime is we can actually support more than mo- one virtual machine or more than one interpreter of the state. Because, again, contracts <laughs> don't have global memory, right? They're just bytecode. So you would run Sapling as a VM inside Solana. And the stuff that you're executing in this like zero-knowledge environment that's what the customer wants.
2: Oh, I I see. So it would be so it would be inside an app inside Solana that within the app everything
1: is yep. zero knowledge. And nobody cares who pays for the gas. Kind of like a shielded pool. Yep. Yeah. Okay.
0: Do you have any plans to like integrate Solana with any other networks? Like, are you thinking of bridging?
1: Yeah, um, Terra is actually building something which is pretty cool. But like IBC is interesting, all this stuff again, like my experience engineer from Qualcomm is very boring. I'm like, this is (laughs) too new, you can't, how do you, how do you trust like millions of dollars to this?
2: (laughs) Are there any plans for Bitcoin on Solana?
1: Like TBTC? Yeah. That kind of thing? What the,
2: your, your, pick your, pick your flavor of mechanism. If,
1: if if you know a
2: big customer told you we want Bitcoin on Solana,
1: but it, is it Bitcoin?
0: Yeah,
1: is it
2: actually yes. Bitcoin?
1: Oh. Like it is is wrapped
2: Bitcoin? Bitcoin? Oh well, I'm not sure from the from attack. I think depends on who you ask. Uh, if you ask the IRS, if BTC and WBTC are like kind assets, maybe I do not know. But like the whole
1: point of why would you even want B- BTC? Right? Is because you want this like settlement into something that has like the security properties of bitcoin or you're just trading if it's just for trading then yeah we can give you an oracle price feed at 400 milliseconds and give you BTC exposure (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right that's yeah (laughs) yeah
2: yeah. like a so you would do it like a synthetic so if if somebody wanted to have access to bitcoin you would do it like a synthetic that makes sense to me
1: one of our validators uh, Stakefish, they're like part of the f mining pool, like they could just issue Bitcoin. Everybody, It's not like people wouldn't trust them, right?
2: To your point though, I think you made an important distinction in the sense that when people are using Bitcoin, they care about the settlement assurances. You know, that the thing that you just transacted in, it's very unlikely to get reverted and it's
1: very likely that your transaction will go through. It's not that a transaction. No, it, it's, it's that I'm me as a custodian i am receiving the bitcoin and it's now settled with me it's not that you and i exchange in some centralized exchange for bitcoin i mean that is where almost all the trades right but like to me the fundamental value of bitcoin is that like somebody across the world can transfer a billion dollars or arbitrary amount of dollars and they can settle immediately and that settlement is guaranteed, right? With this like a massive amount of electricity, right? Like that part, like, I don't know what TBTC or RAP BTC doesn't expose that, right? The settlement risk is hidden from the user.
2: The security model changes with additional right. assumptions being baked in. Well, I guess in the case of a TBTC or a Bitcoin on Ethereum kind of thing, you're switching your security model from whatever electricity is being consumed in Bitcoin to whatever electricity is consumed in Ethereum, plus you know some additional um, mechanisms introduced in each system, whether that is you know the fraud
1: proofs and whatnot. Do you believe that like proof of state networks will have the same level of security?
2: No, I'm a proof of work guy on that end. Me I too. Think it's... Like,
1: I, I...
0: <laughs> and yet you have a proof of stake network, don't you? It's Solana's proof but secu- of stake.
1: So. Security is is only one parameter, right? I honestly believe that like proof of work is like web scale security, right? Bitcoin itself has managed a way to capture security at like a global level. It is more secure than like probably the Golden Fort Knox, right? (laughs) Um,
0: Cool. So thank you for coming on the show, Anatoly. Thank
1: you, Anatoly. Thank you so much. This was super fun.
0: And thanks, Georgios, for guest hosting. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.